Thank you for downloading from the Great Commission Society. Support for this podcast comes from your generous gifts and donations. You can find out more about our global ministry and team at www.greatcommissionsociety.com. A small bottle containing urine sat upon the desk of Sir William Osler, an eminent Canadian professor of medicine at Oxford University. Sitting before him was a class full of young, wide-eyed medical students, listening to his lecture on the importance of observing details. To emphasise his point, he announced, This bottle contains a sample for analysis. It's often possible by tasting it to determine the disease from which the patient suffers. He then dipped a finger into the fluid and brought it into his mouth. He continued speaking. Now I'm going to pass the bottle around. Each of you please do exactly as I did. Perhaps we can learn the importance of this technique and diagnose the case. The bottle made its way round from row to row, each student gingerly poking his finger in and bravely sampling the contents with a frown. Dr. Osler then retrieved the bottle and startled the students by saying, Gentlemen, now you'll understand what I mean when I speak about details. Had you been observant, you would have seen that I put my index finger in the bottle, but my middle finger into my mouth. Many people live their lives just like the students of Professor Osler's class. They think they have life all figured out, but they've forgotten one important detail, the need to allow Christ to change them into the kind of people that God wants them to be. As a result, life is toxic and bitter. God doesn't hide the way from us or try to deceive us as Professor Osler did to his students. The Bible clearly gives us instructions for living a life with purpose and meaning. All we need to do is to open our eyes, to think and to pay attention to what God has to say to us. As we read in Psalm 34 verse 8, taste and see that the Lord is good. It's been reported that one of India's great political leaders, Mahatma Gandhi, once said, I don't reject your cries. It is just that so many of you Christians are so unlike your cries. Hello. And welcome to our GCS podcast with international evangelist and author, Tony Anthony. A lot of people who go to church resemble Christians, but many appear to lack real authenticity with no living, vital relationship with Jesus Christ. What causes some Christians to look less like Jesus and more like the world? What does your life with Christ look like? Does it mirror Him, or do you feel like there are changes that need to be made in order for that to happen? And if it doesn't look like Christ, what is keeping you from being the person that God wants you to be? To answer these questions, let's join Tony as he explores the stewardship of God's truth through authentic evangelism in his message, Leaning Towers. If personal authenticity is crucial in being able to draw others towards Christ, we must also be sure that we're able to continually keep the bigger picture in mind. When it comes to proclaiming the gospel, it's vital that we have a clear understanding of its truth. But what is truth? Have you ever stopped to really consider what you believe the truth of the gospel to be? It's an interesting exercise, actually, to see if you can actually agree as a group on the truth. We've previously considered that false teaching has infiltrated our churches across the world, in some cases has been incorporated into our understanding of what the gospel is and what the Great Commission's all about. So how do we as Christians ensure that what we believe is God's actual intention? What is truth? 
Well, the answer should be simple. God's word, because the Bible is truth. Yet if we ask 20 Bible-believing Christians what is evangelism, we'll probably receive 20 quite different answers. So who is telling the truth and how can we find it out? Hopefully, you know, we can study the scriptures for ourselves and we pray and we ask the Holy Spirit to enlighten us. But it's not always that simple, is it? Because if it were, we wouldn't have quite so many disagreements in our churches around the world and split denominations. That would be an anomaly. So what do we do with our 20 different definitions? Should we just go on with our own hunch and make it up as we go along? Hope for the best and ignore the issue? No. When a builder sets about building a house, he has to get the foundations right if the project is to succeed. You know, he draws on the authority of an architect who carefully calculates the measurements, the dimensions and the materials. The plans are defined at the earliest stage. Without this groundwork, you know, the builder might have nothing more than random sections of brickwork that make no sense and are of no use to anyone. The Bible calls us to be like master builders knowing we must be accurate as we study biblical words. You know, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, you know, implores us, do your best to present yourselves to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Consider the leading Tower of Pisa. You know, what a fabulous example. You know, since its construction in 1173, the tower has become a world-renowned icon. It's hardly the straight, erect tower that its planners intended. Somewhere along the line, something went drastically wrong. The foundations were poorly laid, and nobody anticipated the shifting substrata that very soon allowed the tower to start its famous tilt. Well, what can we say? It's a bell tower. It's done its job and even brought a wealth of tourism to Pisa down the ages but it does not stand to the truth of its intentions. It's not particularly honourable to its designer or builder. Maybe the what is truth issue is often at the forefront of my mind because of the many people I meet on my travels. I'm constantly aghast at how many sign up to the ideology or lifestyle based on very little knowledge or exploration. I'll never forget a particular conversation with a London taxi driver. He'll tell me of his experience with a Ouija board. You know, he was so excited and enthusiastic after a first session where the board revealed information to other members of the group. I have a real difficult decision to make, he told me, and I just don't know what to do. Whatever I decide, it's going to cause damage to someone, so I need a message to tell me which is the right way. I listened sadly, incredulous that his trust in this board was instant and unwavering. Deeply disturbed, I, I longed to share the gospel with him and carefully picked my way around the conversation, trying to expose the false trust he was placing in the seance. You know, how do you know this to be true? I asked. You know, where do you think this information comes from? You know, I asked him, you know, what if you're wrong? There were questions he hadn't even considered, and that's surprising. Ultimately, it paved the way for me to share the truth with him. But the point is that many people seem to casually base their eternal future on whatever is offered to them, without thorough investigation, without seeking the truth. So where do we find truth? That's the question. You know, a man is suffering with a heart problem. He refers to a top cardiologist who runs a range of high-level, sophisticated tests and reports that surgery is required. The doctor assures the man that he's in good hands and that he has performed the same operation many, many times before on other similar patients. Well, the man goes home and tells his neighbour. Now, the neighbour takes hold of his friend's wrist and fumbles around until he finds his pulse. 
The friend waits expectantly as the neighbour counts 10 seconds. Nah, don't worry about it, mate. There's nothing wrong with you. Forget about it. Seems to me that you're, you're fitting well, he announces. You know, who does the man trust? You know, he's not sure, so he looks at the evidence. The cardiologist is one of the most respected and renowned in his profession. He's got 30 years experience, has read many, many books on the subject. The neighbour, on the other hand, well, he's got no idea what he's talking about, except for some good pointers he's gleaned from the Reader's Digest article on how to keep your heart healthy. Well, who does the man trust? <laughs> Come on, do you really need to think about that? It's simple, and it's rather a farcical example, isn't it? But hopefully, this opens up the idea that when we're uncertain, it's important to turn to an authority or an expert, someone who's entitled to speak on the matter. After all, that's why the New Testament demonstrates a need for leadership and authority within the church. We should be really thankful that today we're blessed with numerous such people and all manner of communication through which they can expound their God-given wisdom. You know, the Apostle Paul came across difficult issues in the early church as the young Christians began shaping their corporate worship. You can just imagine the headaches that he, he, he experienced. You know, in his first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 14, verse 29, he recommends two or three prophets should speak and the others should weigh carefully what is said. And this idea of carefully weighing, you know, I believe even more imperative today. We live in a time when liberal ideologies concerning the Bible and Christian belief are rife, and there are many issues on which, you know, respected authorities disagree on. The church has enough hot potatoes to feed a heavenly banquet for all eternity, but you might be surprised to learn that when it comes to the definition of evangelism, there's remarkable agreements between scholars across denominations and cultures. You know, why is it important that we should be bothered to seek out a definition of evangelism and what it means to evangelize? Well, as we, you know, have looked at previously, you know, I had a friend in a soup kitchen and there are many good hearted Christians who believe they're engaged in evangelism and yet they're not actually doing evangelism at all. That, that you know, that, that is they're, they're involved in all sorts of activities in the name of evangelism, but rarely do their efforts include the proclamation of the gospel. And so then again, you might ask, you know, well, who says evangelism is the proclamation of the gospel? Well, here's where we should turn to some of those authorities that I mentioned on such a matter. Now, interestingly, two of the world's leading Bible scholars, Dr. John Stott and Dr. J.I. Packer, they both assert that evangelism is very simply the proclamation of the gospel. It's just simply the proclamation of the gospel. And in acknowledgement of the importance of this issue, modern history has seen the establishment of the Lausanne Conference in, on Evangelism. And now this conference seeks to define terms and determine agreement and understanding across the broad spectrum of the Christian church. When the conference first met in 1974, it universally agreed that their first statement to evangelise is to spread the good news. Interesting enough, the word evangelism appears very infrequently in the actual Gospels, but down the ages, the church has embraced it as suitable description for the Great Commission. The proclaiming of the Gospel. Now, in its original context, an evangelist was the runner, a runner who would carry good news of a military victory, just a messenger. He would basically run from the battlefield to the king, kneel at his feet, unroll a scroll and announce this victory. He was essentially a messenger of good news. Now, the scroll on which the good news was written was known as the Evangel. And evangelism was the word used to describe the act of announcing the military victory to the ruler. Using this terminology in the Christian realm, 
we can legitimately claim that the act of actually announcing the gospel to non-Christians and ensuring that they understand it is called evangelism. Something important to note here is that in this context, the message has a beginning, a middle and an end. And that's therefore why we call it an event and not a process. So let me say that again. Evangelism is an event and not a process. Now, I know that this is a pretty heavy statement that flies in the face of many people's thinking and teaching about evangelism. But consider it this way. If you want to grow something in your garden, what do you do? You know, do you go to your soil and uh, plough the ground and then, you know, put the seeds just sort of part way into the ground, go off and have a cup of tea and then maybe come back a little bit later, push the seed in a bit more, go off and maybe have a bit of a nap and then go back to your seeds and push it in all the way because you think it's a process, you know, and then later you go back and you cover it over with the soil and then you water it. No, of course not. You either sow the seed or you don't. You see, it is, a, it is an event that happens or it doesn't in the same way with evangelism. We either sow the seed of the gospel or we don't. You know, the relevance here is, is, cannot be underestimated. It's got to become clear in our discussions. You know, so by our definitions, it follows that anyone who's proclaiming the gospel is evangelizing and acting as an evangelist. However, Scripture teaches us that some people in the church have what is commonly understood as the gift of evangelism. Now, the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus of the special gifts and calling that God has in the lives of certain individuals in the church. You know, we read in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, it was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers, to prepare God's people for works of service, so that the body of Christ may be built up. Now, when I studied the work of John Wesley and Charles Spurgeon, Hutton Taylor, Smith Wigglesworth, and from a more modern era, Billy Graham and Luce Palau, among others, I resonate with the same heart cry. You know, such men are certainly what we might call Ephesians 4, 11 to 12 evangelists. What a privilege to be able to address hundreds of thousands of people, you know, and from street corners to stages, stadiums, witnessing God turning many souls for his glory. You know, our international evangelistic ministry has over 200 associate evangelists, men and women who believe themselves called by God to make proclaiming the gospel their life priority. Circumstances and cultures vary tremendously, but what such people share is a deep compulsion to respond to their vocation and gifting. Many other people around the world also share this calling. Some who have aligned themselves with evangelistic mission organisations such as Open Air Campaigners, Youth for Christ, Campus Crusade, Teen Challenge and Youth of a Mission, to name just a few. But there are also others who simply go about their everyday lives and everyday jobs being evangelists. My friend, for example, Chris, is a window cleaner by trade. He's got no call to address masses from a stage and any spark of limelight sends him running for cover. Yet all who know Chris recognise that he's a gifted evangelist. The very kind Paul was highlighting in his note to the Ephesians. Few days pass without God placing someone before him who needs to hear the gospel from this most humble yet powerfully gifted individual. I sometimes imagine that evangelists can be parodied with dogs. We're all the same species, yet all so different. Some are the yappy terrier type who just can't shut up no matter where they are or who they're with. You know, some are bulldogs, strong, determined and fiercely charged. Some are sheepdogs, working diligently for the master, attentively going only where and when he leads. Others are show dogs that can stand up in front of an audience and present the gospel with confidence. Others are like greyhounds, fast, furious and focused, 
burning themselves out to win the race. Then there's the good old faithful Labrador, gentle, trustworthy, sensitive, good with children, leader of the blind. All are different, yet all are man's best friend. I mean, indulge me, if you will, in this analogy. The evangelists are called to be mankind's best friend. The point I'm, I'm making here is that all share the same passion and mission, but it's important to recognise that our personality types will always try to dictate the way we do our job. This was something that became very clear to me on one of my, my first missions that took place in New Zealand. I was invited along with a fellow evangelist to lunch at the home of one of the couples organising the mission or actually one one part of the mission. It's always nice to be invited to join someone's family, but our new friends were honest in declaring that our invitation came with something of an agenda. They were deeply troubled that their eldest daughter was not a Christian and hoped that in meeting us, she might be challenged. Well, as the lunch appointments approached, my evangelist friend and I were like soldiers preparing for war. We prayed together and built ourselves up in anticipation of prayerfully sharing the gospel both being of a certain bulldog-like personality when it comes to our passion for evangelism, we were determined almost to the point of aggression. I should probably confess that there might also have been a degree of competitiveness between the two of us as to who would actually win her for Christ. (laughs) You know, it's sad, but, you know, we're human. Well, the family were very welcoming and all was well as we began eating together, but I could tell that my friend was itching to get stuck in. It wasn't long before he turned the general pleasantries into a more direct challenge aimed at the young girl. No wonder she quickly grew tense and resistant as my friend pursued a hard line of questions about her lack of belief. In good faith and passion for her salvation, my friend pressed on, confronting her with the gospel message. But I soon realised that in this case, a very different approach was needed from me. Against all my natural instincts, I kept my mouth shut, can you believe it? And I decided that I would not even try to speak the gospel to her, at least not on this occasion. Instead, I simply caught her eye and offered a smile. When I could get a word in edgeways from my friend, I turned the conversation into other things, asking her about her job, her friends, her life, sharing stories and photographs of my family, but deliberately avoiding anything to do with Christianity. Lunch was good. And after a relaxing afternoon, my friend and I left to prepare for the mission that evening. The next day, though, I received an exciting, emotionally charged call from our new friends. Despite her parents being the organisers of the mission, the young girl had vowed that she would not be attending the evening meeting. I shouldn't have been surprised that by deliberately not preaching over lunch, I had intrigued her and that prompted her to come to the evening meeting. You know, she had warmed to my friendship connection that we made early in the afternoon and, and was interested to hear bits and pieces of my story. So in the evening, she wanted to hear the whole thing. Of course, in that evening, I did share my whole story, as always, as a vehicle to give a clear, compelling presentation of the gospel. I must admit to shedding tears myself when her dad told me that she, along with her friend, had attended the meeting and she responded to the message, stepped forward and to accept Christ as her saviour. Isn't that amazing? You see, when we present the gospel, we must do so with love, grace, and tenderness. This is the premise that was summarised in our second statement there by the Lausanne Conference in 1974, where they said, our Christian presence in the world is indispensable to evangelism, and so that kind of dialogue whose purpose is to listen sensitively in order to understand. Sometimes I perceive that we Ephesians 4 evangelists can be so caught up in our determination to share the gospel that we fail to embrace this truth. 
Like, like bulldogs, terriers or greyhounds, we can tend to focus a great deal on us and our mission to the detriment of those we're supposed to be ministering to. Similarly, it's a sad fact that show dogs can battle with ego and begin to believe in their own power and ability rather than masters. Got to be careful there. There's a story about John Bunyan, who, when he had finished addressing a large crowd, had a man approach him. Sir, let me be the first to congratulate you on a wonderful sermon, the man said. No, you're not the first, replied Bunyan. The devil's already done that. Then there are others, the less showy breeds, who are driven by evangelistic calling, but easily become heavily burdened, prone to depression and bogged down by everyday life, despite the passion for evangelism that still burns in their belly. You know, there are many, many pitfalls in the work of a called evangelist. Most evangelists I know, when being really honest, would admit to significant struggles. Many of us suffer significantly with feelings of discouragement and isolation. It's so true. Too often we find that our home churches are not particularly supportive of us in our role as an evangelist. And sometimes the fact that not every Christian appears to share the same passion to see the lost saved just gets a bit depressing, you know. Many of us suffer with frustration over the workings of our ministries or organisations. Or we struggle with money management or spiritual disciplines such as Bible reading and even praying. The devil always attacks through our close circles, and that usually means through family, friends, health, church, and those who would support us in ministry. All the things closest to our hearts and most needed so that we can function properly in our calling. When we're on the front line of battle, we can expect full-on attack with sling and arrow. There's no easy answer to this other than to be aware and to be on guard against the, 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 the enemy. In 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 8, it warns us, Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. This means being especially careful to protect our relationships and to be constantly in check of our morality in thought and deed and in witness to others. I'm sure that if you're not such an evangelist yourself, you'll recognise some of what I'm talking about in those that you know. One thing's clear. Though evangelists are certainly called to be man's best friend, according to scripture, that means more than just proclaiming the gospel to unbelievers. Remember the second part of those verses there in Ephesians 4. Some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers, to prepare God's people for works of service, so that the body of Christ may be built up. You know, here's an area that I perceive can be very lacking in our churches and in the lives of so-called evangelists. As we know, our earlier discussions on this, from the clarity of the Great Commission, all Christians are called to engage in the work of evangelism. All are called to spread the good news of Jesus Christ, yet not all have the gift of being able to naturally proclaim the gospel. This is where the work of the gifted evangelist comes in. It is his or her commission to train the church, to prepare God's people for works of service. I'm sure that when God places an evangelist in a particular church, it is so that he or she can train the rest of the congregation in the art of proclaiming the gospel. Meanwhile, others are engaged in the jobs that require other giftings, teaching, preaching, discipling, tea-making, the reality is that most Christians don't know how to share the gospel, though. Is it because they've never had any kind of training, perhaps? More than likely. Is it because those who seem to be called to evangelism don't fully embrace their biblical remit? Is it because other leaders in the church don't recognise them as such? 
Only God can give the gift of evangelism. But when someone with the gift trains others in how to proclaim the gospel, that's when they begin to function as an Ephesians evangelist. When this happens, the wider church is faithful to what Jesus asks of all of us through the Great Commission. Defining our terms, knowing the truth, trusting the correct authorities and knowing our calling is fundamental to the propagation of the gospel. Are you an Ephesians 4 evangelist? If you believe this is your gifting, are you fully aware of the responsibility of your role? Are you regularly proclaiming the gospel to non-Christians? And are you training and encouraging other members of your church? Are you a minister or church leader who needs to recognise the gifting of others in your congregation? You may be a great pastor, a great preacher or teacher, but you will struggle to successfully equip your congregation with the skills or the impetus to share the gospel in the wider community without utilising the evangelistic gift God is giving to you. Do you need to identify those with the gift of evangelism and set out to mobilise them to somehow fulfil their biblically ordained job? And what about everybody else? What if your gifting is hospitality or teaching or reading, praying, making tea, cleaning the carpets? After everyone else has gone home for Sunday lunch, what if you're pretty sure that you are not an Ephesians 4 evangelist? Well, the answer, as I hope you're coming to understand, is that as a follower of Christ, you're still called to engage in the Great Commission. You just need a little help to set you on your way. We hope you enjoyed the message. Please subscribe and leave a rating and review to help others find our podcast. At GCS, our mission is to communicate the gospel message relevantly to every person in the world. One way we do this is by providing practical resources to help you grow in your faith and present the Christian faith across different cultures. You can find out more about our resources at www.greatcommissionsociety.com If you would like to donate to our efforts, be sure to contact us or you can donate online. GCS is a listener-supported ministry and is chaired by a board of directors in Edinburgh, UK.